And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you so much for listening to us today. How are you doing, Sarah? I'm dying. Yeah, you're under the weather today. Yeah. How are you? I'm fine. Uh, The calendar marches inexorably forward towards Christmas. We are seeing the new Star Wars movie on Friday. I, I'm hoping it's good. Either way, I know I will enjoy it. Yeah, that's fair. I don't think I've ever really had, like, a bad time at a Star Wars movie in a theater. Um, but I, I hope it's good. Anyways. What do you think this movie will be? Will this movie be good? Um, I don't think so. Okay. But, speaking of Star Wars, I suppose, uh, the name of this movie is The Spider-Woman Strikes Back. (laughs) And um, it is a bit of an odd duck for something we're looking at for the Scream Scene list. Mm -hmm. I feel like we've run into the reverse of this situation, or like we will run into the reverse of this situation in the future, where like you have a movie like Alien, right? Yeah. And that's like a scary movie. Yeah. And then it has a sequel like Aliens that's more of an action movie. Yeah. Or you have something like Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, which is like a sequel to the Universal Monster movies, but it's a comedy. Or, you know, these things where a horror movie has a sequel that's maybe not necessarily horror. This movie is a sequel, spinoff of a previous movie that we have not watched because it wasn't horror because it was... Sherlock Holmes. Right. And I feel like this is a bizarre situation created solely by the fact that, like, both the Sherlock Holmes movies of this period and the Universal Monster movies were, like, under the same B-movie division of Universal. So there you was, like... Sherlock a... Holmes was considered B-movie? Um... After, like, the first few of them in the series, they moved it over to, like, yeah, like, B-movie production. Sure. I mean, I guess they just churned them out. Exactly. So this is the kind of, like, cross-pollination that, like, makes sense then, but, like, now seems weird. I don't know. Um, So this is related in some way. It is a follow-up to a movie called The Spider-Woman, right? Yes. From 1943. Okay. Wow, three years later, that's that's an eternity in 1940s, like, sequel time. <laughs> We've focused on Universal's horror films, but as you've kind of just alluded to, they had another successful franchise in the 40s, Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. Starring Basil Rathbone as Sherlock Holmes and Nigel Bruce as Dr. Watson, they made 14 films in total... Some of them were direct adaptations, like Hound of the Baskervilles, and others were, what I will say is, like, quotation marked, inspired by Arthur Conan Doyle's stories. Right. The way that, like, Quantum of Solace is inspired by Ian Fleming's James Bond novels. Exactly. Sure. Um, The Spider-Woman is one such example. And these were, like, for years, like, the most famous 
like pop culture versions of Sherlock Holmes too. Oh yeah, to the point where like you immediately think of Basil Rathbone's voice and profile when you think of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson being like mustachioed and large mm-hmm. being fat comes from Nigel Bruce. Right. Now the title character of this movie, the Spider Woman, uh, is played by Gail Sondergaard. Mm-hmm. We first saw her as the housekeeper in 1941's The Black Cat, episode 86. And the year that she played the Spider-Woman in this 43 film, she was also Lady Irene Herrick in The Invisible Man's Revenge, right. episode 119, and Louise in The Climax from episode 124. And Louise was... She was like the lesbian lover of Boris Karloff's dead wife, who looked exactly like the young ingenue he was trying to get with, right? Yes. Okay. Slash housekeeper. Right. She was also his <laughs> housekeeper, yes. So the plot of The Spider-Woman, 1943. There are a number of strange suicides striking London's wealthy men. Mm-hmm. Holmes decides to fake his own death to investigate. <laughs> As you do. He does do this quite often. Um, He then disguises himself as the Indian soldier Rajni Singh Mm -hmm. and heads to London's gaming clubs. Okay. Because he suspects foul play. Right. Not just suicide. No, I mean, of course, yeah. There, he meets Sundergaard's character, Adreya Spedding, whom he describes as a female Moriarty. Right. She targets men running low on money for gambling and says, Hey, I'll spot you, but why don't you change your life insurance policy to one of my colleagues here? And then that person, the guy, ends up dying. <laughs> what, a, what a bizarrely obvious scam. Setting himself up as the next target, Holmes discovers she's using the fictional deadly spider Lycosa carnivora whose bite causes so much pain, the victim kills himself. <laughs> the, bite, the bite itself is not lethal. It's just, it's just so painful. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, as Holmes and Watson investigate, they uncover members of Spedding's gang, including um, someone who they first think is a child, but turns out to be a, quote, pygmy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The investigations lead them to a fairground, like a yeah. like a circus sure. festival thing. A carnival? Carnival, that's the word. And there, Holmes is captured and rigged to a moving target at the shooting gallery, uh-huh. where Watson and Inspector Lestrade are taking shots. But Holmes escapes, and Spedding and her entire gang are arrested. And then, presumably, uh, Holmes goes and gets high. Right. Well, it's the 40s, so he doesn't do that. But uh, He does it off screen. Sure. You know, as someone who, <laughs> like, has a complete Sherlock Holmes collection, um, it's funny hearing, like, the different bits and pieces from authentic home stories that are kind of mashed together in there. It really is similar to the way that, like, James Bond movies often just take bits and pieces of the novels and mash them together. Yeah. The ones that I noticed, um, the most... Obvious, I think, is, like, uh, The Murder by Venomous Animal that comes from the short story The Speckled Band. Yeah. Only that time it's a snake. snake. Holmes faking his death. Uh, that's, like, 
the final problem. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't fake at the time. I don't remember what the story where he reveals it was fake is called, though. The Empty House. Yes, you're right. Yeah. Um, the Pygmies from Sign of Four. Yes. Yeah, that was the last thing I, I also noticed. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> I feel like this is the way with, like, a lot of, like mystery novels but especially like Sherlock Holmes even James Bond where like you read it out loud and you're like the fuck (laughs) (laughs) sure but anyways it it probably seemed reasonable at the time (laughs) um but anyways that's the spider woman from 1943 I tried my best to figure out why this movie happened well, presumably, like, I couldn't find any information about the box office numbers, but presumably the Spider-Woman was successful because it was also, like, the seventh of 14 films. Yeah, like, all of those Sherlock Holmes movies were successful, at least, presumably until they weren't. Yeah. Right? Um, so I was trying to figure out, like, why three years later you would make, like, a spin-off movie about the Spider-Woman that's not a Sherlock Holmes movie that would be considered a horror movie. Mm -hmm. And I guess what was happening as Universal moved into the late 40s and was kind of in a period of um, uncertainty uh, is they were looking for some new horror franchises to try and start because there was a feeling that the old ones had run out of steam, that Frankenstein, Dracula, the mummy, um, the wolfman had kind of run their course, which... Yes, that is accurate. Yes, exactly. So there was this desire to create some new horror icons who could ground a franchise. And ironically, although this one sort of comes out first, um, the idea for taking characters like bad guys from the Sherlock Holmes movies and spinning them off actually came from Rondo Hatton in the Sherlock Holmes film The Pearl of Death. And in that film, Hatton played a Jack the Ripper-esque serial killer type guy called the Creeper. Mm. And there was this idea of spinning the Creeper off into his own movies. After having Hatton in The Pearl of Death, they sort of tried him out in a more straight horror film context in The Jungle Captive. Yeah. Based on kind of doing that, there was like, okay, well, let's also see what other Sherlock Holmes villains we could spin off into a horror franchise. And so the Spider-Woman got picked for one as well, uh, and thus Gail Sondergaard brought back be the lead of the movie. Mm -hmm. With this film being designed as a starring vehicle for Gail Sondergaard, um, as you mentioned, we've seen her before in uh, a few different movies, but I thought it would be good to maybe give a bit more detail on her, um... We've given this yeah, detail. Yeah, she's been, like, very, like, minor roles. Exactly. And we've we've said some of this in previous episodes, but because this is really the first time we're running into her in a starring vehicle, I thought it best to kind of go over her life again. Mm-hmm. So she was born in 1899 as Edith Sondergaard. She studied acting at the Minneapolis School of Dramatic Arts before becoming a actress in a touring Shakespeare company and then eventually making her way to Broadway. Her first film role was in 1936's Anthony Adverse, and that role saw her become the first winner of the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. Uh, She was almost 
the Wicked Witch of the West in The Wizard of Oz. Right. Uh, but when the role was retooled from a sexy vamp to a more traditional witch, Sondergaard dropped out of the film, thinking that the kind of traditional witch appearance would be damaging to her career. Mm-hmm. Um, she really did develop this niche as like mysterious, dark vamp kind of characters. As you pointed out, we've already seen her in a few different horror movies in minor roles. But despite these B-movie appearances, she continued to appear in A-pictures as well. The same year that The Spider-Woman Strikes Back came out, she earned a second Best Supporting Actress nomination for her role as the King's Wife in Anna and the King of Siam. Mm -hmm. Her career, however, was brought to a premature end Uh, when her husband, screenwriter Herbert J. Bieberman, was accused of being a communist and named as one of the Hollywood Ten during the Red Scare of the 1950s. Sondergaard made the choice to support her husband and not disavow him, which saw her blacklisted as well, and her acting career would not resume until the 1970s, uh, and then she would pass away at age 86 in 1985. Well, that's too bad that we didn't get to see more films from her. Yeah, so this is really the only major role that we're going to see for her on Scream Scene. The script to this film is by Eric Taylor, who also wrote or co-wrote Black Friday from 1940, The Black Cat from 1941, The Ghost of Frankenstein from 1942, Phantom of the Opera from 1943, and Son of Dracula from 1943. A mixed bag there. (laughs) Yes, exactly. The original director assigned to this film was Ford Beeb, but he somehow managed to... Get out of it? Yes, exactly. And so Arthur... I I can't come into work this week. (coughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm sick. Please give this film to someone else. Yeah, so it ended up getting assigned to Arthur Lubin. And Lubin was the successful director of Universal's Abbott and Costello comedies, as well as having directed the Technicolor films Phantom of the Opera and Alibaba and the Forty Thieves. So this guy considered himself, like, one of Universal's A directors, and he just hated this movie. Uh, (laughs) He hated the assignment. He tried as hard as he could to get out of it as well, but the studio threatened him with suspension if he did not make this movie. (laughs) So he was just kind of stuck with the job. Oh my god. Just, like, just do a good job and get through it, dude. (laughs) Come on. Uh, The rest of the cast consists of B-movie stalwarts uh, like Brenda Joyce, who played Jane in the uh, Johnny Weissmuller Tarzan films for five installments from 1945 to 1949. She was the second Jane in that series, taking over from Maureen O'Sullivan, who's the more well-known Jane of those Tarzan films. Um, So because her tenure was 45 to 49, she would have been the current Jane of the Tarzan movies when she made this film. Uh, Also appearing in this movie is Kirby Grant, who was at the time Universal's top Western action star. Why is he in this movie? Because they needed someone with a square jaw, I would assume. Uh, Also appearing is Milburn Stone, who Hmm. we know best as the former uh, lead male character of the Paula Dupree 
movies hired because he resembled a lion tamer who they used stock footage from. Does that mean that there's going to be stock footage in this movie? I have no idea, uh, but most audiences know Milburn Stone best for playing Doc on the TV show Gunsmoke from 1955 to 1975. Uh, finally, Rondo Hatton himself appears in this film as Mario the Monster Man. And for more information on Hatton, you can listen to our Jungle Captive episode, which is episode 131. Uh, he's 51 years old in his appearance here. And um, as you would know, if you've seen that movie or listened to that episode or just familiar with Hatton in general, he suffered from acromegaly, which was a disorder where your extremities, your hands, your feet, your head sort of become enlarged uh, in sort of like almost a tumorous way. Um, But it's just like you'll get these very bulbous growths and shapes. Uh, it kind of tends to give your face a bit of like a, a Neanderthalish kind of look, which led to Hatton getting cast a lot as bad guys in horror movies like this, just because he had this appearance that meant that they didn't have to pay Jack Pierce anything that day. <laughs> now, as I mentioned earlier, his first appearance in a Universal film had been Pearl of Death and his second Jungle Captive. This is his third feature film for Universal. Um, it would be followed up for him by two starring roles as the Creeper, his character from the Sherlock Holmes movie, um, in kind of a spin-off series that was meant to be a trilogy, um, but there was only two because Hatton would suffer a series of heart attacks over the winter of 1945 through to 46 and pass away on February 2nd, 1946. The Spider-Woman Strikes Back was released March 22nd. 1946. So he was already passed away when this movie came out, and was already passed away by the time the two movies, like, starring him came out. Mm. The Spider-Woman Strikes Back was very poorly received by critics. What a surprise! It did very poorly with audiences at the box office. Who'd have thought? And continued the trend of diminishing returns for Universal making these kinds of movies. This is my surprised face. When a director doesn't want to do this, who, who'd have thunk it? Who'd have thunk that this movie would be a flop? What is happening, Ben? Why? Why? How could this movie be so bad? Who knows? The Spider-Woman Strikes Back has never been released to home video. Oh, how are we watching it? Well, there are bootleg... We're going back in time. There are bootleg prints of it available uh, all over the place. The Internet Archive, YouTube, um, just all over the place. Uh, I am presuming that they are illegal because I think this movie is still copyrighted. But all of these bootleg prints come from the same 16mm rental print of the Spider-Woman Strikes Back. They have the same countdown. They're, they're, the, they're just like dupes. Like some of them are on tape, but they're dupes of like other copies of this one 16mm rental print. Um, and that's it. There's no other home video release of this movie. If you would like to watch along... Have fun. (laughs) Join us for this ride. You can head to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com, and head to our playlist there. You'll find this film on there. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss 
The Spider-Woman Strikes Back from 1946, directed by Arthur Lubin. See you on the other side, everybody. Back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Spider-Woman Strikes Back from 1946, directed by Arthur Lubin. So that was an hour spent. Mm-hmm. Yep. Very accurate. Yeah. The title of this movie... Doesn't make sense. ...is the least... I don't know if it's the least accurate title we've ever gotten, but it is certainly one of the least <laughs> accurate titles we've ever gotten, because not only... Is Gail Sundegard not playing the same character she played in the Spider-Woman? Not even in the sense of like, oh, she's going by a different name. Yeah. And not only is she not really like striking back at anyone. Well, she kind of is. But she's not a Spider-Woman in any sense of the word, really. Well, she, well, those are two words. But she is a woman. Mm -hmm. And there are spiders. Right. And she does interact with them. That's right. And I in hated a, that part of the movie. The, the brief ten seconds of it, if yeah, not less. Yeah, but they're like right up in your face, Ben. It maybe she's maybe, the best you could give it is she's maybe a metaphorical spider woman in that she has spun a web as a trap for someone else, metaphorically speaking. And she's knitting all the time. A more accurate title for this movie would be like, Big bag of shrug emoji. Oh, I was going to say, um, poison ivy. Sure. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, how about we stop trying to, like, tease what this is, and I'll just actually tell the audience what it is. Yeah. So in the film, Jean Kingsley, who is played by Brenda Joyce, arrives in Domingo. Which, to... which I assume is somewhere in California. Well, it's definitely in the States, and it's definitely, like, in, like, mid to lower half of the United States. They refer it's not, to like, Texas, but, like... They refer to San Francisco as if that's the big city. Yeah. And because it's got, like, a Spanish name, I just assume this is Southern California. Mm-hmm. Though I will say I was a little worried when we first arrived in Domingo. Mm-hmm. I was like, I didn't prep myself to be dealing with, like, a Black Moon situation here. Yeah, no, it's just, like, the name of the town. Yeah. Anyways, Jean arrives in Domingo to be a blind woman's companion. Jean has suffered some job-related stress and is looking forward to working in the country. She runs into an old sweetheart, Hal, played by Kirby Grant. At the house, Jean meets Zenobia Dollard, who is Gail Sundergaard, and her mute butler, Mario the Monster Man. Not actually referred to that <laughs> in the film. Played by Rondo Hatton. Under the guise of, it's good for you, Jean is made to drink glasses of milk before bed, uh, but it's drugged. Zenobia turns out to be not blind, and... In drugging Jean, this allows Zenobia to take her blood to feed to her basement plants. Um, and that's why she's a little bit like Poison Ivy. 
Uh, she does have spiders as well, and she definitely feeds those to the plants as well. Like, clearly a detail that is there solely to justify the title. Yeah. Meanwhile, these plants are being used to poison nearby cattle so they die. The ranchers in the area are all leaving. When Zenobia is discovered to not be blind by Jean, she explains that her family used to own all this land, but her father sold it while she was out traveling, traveling the world and all that, um, because of gambling. So now, with all the ranchers leaving, she'll buy it all back and uh, have all this land again. Question mark, question mark, question mark. Profit. But Jean, who now knows all this, must die, uh, like all the companions that came before her. Hal, meanwhile, has been investigating why all these cows are dying and goes to just check up on Jean, um, thinks things are suspicious, wanders around, and with the slightest hint of something's gone wrong, Zenobia's like, burn it all up! Burn it! Hide the evidence! So the house goes up in flames, Hal rescues Jean, and as they are driving back to town, he's like, Jean, you've really experienced a real scare. I know what I'll help you sleep tonight. A warm glass of milk. Womp womp. The end. Oh, uh, Zenobia and Mario both die in the fire. <laughs> it is implied, uh, like at one point, when Zenobia feeds some of the blood to a plant, like it wraps its vines around her, and she's like, oh yes, yes, I, I have feelings for you too, plant. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for, like, holding my hand. Um, when <laughs> there's, like, a shot where Zenobia has, like, a gas can and is just, like, dumping it on all the plants. And it, I think the implication is supposed to be that the plant, like, hugs her or, like, wraps it around her arm or something because she calls for Mario to help her get free. Um, and that's when, like, more flames come up. But everything's very chaotic at the end and it's not very clear at all. Um, so... So... So this movie kind of lies there like a limp noodle as you watch it. Like, it's uh, fine. No, it, yeah, like, it was a fine whatever movie. Like, it's not going to be super good, but there were moments that I thought were interesting, and, like, they were definitely trying to give a bit of a mood. There were moments that I was reminded of, like, gothic horror tropes. Oh, of, like, sure. a new companion coming to this strange place in this big house. It's spooky. There's a weird manservant. When I, um, I'm being poisoned by the food they're giving me. Like, yeah. When I say it's a limp noodle, I don't mean that, like, it's trash. I mean that it's just lying there. That it just sort of sits there. That's it. Like, yeah. it's competent in a certain point of view yes to bring back star wars like like it's it's like you said at the start it's an hour right like this is the kind of thing that 10 years from now would be like an hour of live tv instead of a b movie right where it would be like or like reality tv no like like 10 years from 1946 oh it would be like an hour of a live tv like anthology theater show or something right instead of a b movie um i i like, I'm going to say this, but I'm, I'll give a caveat. Okay. So I think it's pretty clear that no one really cares about what they're doing, at mm. least as far as the people behind the camera. Like, no one's like, this is my passion project. Yeah, you know? yeah. Everyone's just, are just like, Everybody's yeah, doing their okay, job. let's just do this. That being said, Gail Sondergaard is, like, good in this. Yeah, I enjoyed she's fine. her. Um, to the point where I'm like, why are you even in this? Why... 
you're in A pictures. I, I guess maybe you needed a new deck, and so you did this movie. Um, Brenda Joyce is fine. Like, she, she plays the role, whatever. And then Rondo Hatton is doing his thing. He's mute in this movie, so he doesn't get to talk at all. So he just stands there kind of menacingly. Like, everybody's doing what they've been paid to come here to do. Yeah. You know? Oh, um, because he's mute, uh, Mario will do sign language. It's not real sign language. Yeah, it's just some some made-up stuff. Yeah. Like, Um, the moments where, like, it's like he's just gesturing, like, you, go up the stairs. But other times where it's... They're, Clearly, like, quote-unquote, supposed to be ASL. Right, like, as if, like, you had a movie where someone was speaking, like, French, and the person was just going, like, Like, where it's like, that's kind of some French-ish sounding noises. Yeah. It's, it's, but it's that <laughs> for sign language. And it's not like I expected that they would have quality ASL translations up in here. But, like... Come on. There are there are times where it looks better than others. There are times where it looks like Rondo Hatton is clearly just like... Improvising. Yes. This movie is weird to me because it feels like it's trying to be a lesbian vampire movie without in any way being a lesbian vampire movie. <sighs> like, like, imagine... Like, okay, because what we've got here, if you blur your eyes, right? Like, if you cross if your eyes, right, you take your glasses off and you put some cotton in your ears, this movie has, like, the basic shape of a lesbian vampire movie, right? We've got this, like, mysterious old lady in this big foreboding house, and she invites, like, a series of young, youthful companions to be with her, and they all, like, are dying under mysterious circumstances, and, like, the newest one shows up, and it turns out that, like, every night she's visiting her in her sleep and, like, taking her blood, and, like, the, the, the nearby ranchers, like, animals are dying, and, and this kind of thing, right? And there's, like, you know, your older woman and your younger woman. But nothing that would actually make it a lesbian vampire movie is in this movie, because there's no chemistry or anything between the two women. She's taking her blood just through, like, a needle... Uh, it's all tied up into this, like, complicated land grab scheme. Um, <laughs> Poison Ivy meets Carmilla. Right, and it, it has this weird feeling of, like, knowing, like, this is a particular type of horror story, but wanting to stay away from anything that would signal, like, actual, like, sort of lesbian overtones, or, like, anything that actually would signal, I guess, like, the the Hayes Code to give a shit. It feels like a movie that, like, is made by straight people then, because they don't know the codes to put in to, like, signal, hey, this is queer. Or or, or it's, like, a movie made by straight people who don't understand why Carmilla is gay or something, right? Like, like <laughs> They're it's... reading it, and they're like... Yeah, like they're just friends, guys. Well, no, like they're reading it going <laughs> like I don't I don't understand this, but I guess this is what horror is. You know what I mean? Like like there's these elements uh. here that aren't being used to their full potential. It, there could almost be a cool movie in here about like 
kind of a subversion of vampire tropes where it's like, right, but like, she's not a real vampire. She's doing this for these other reasons. But like the movie never stops to comment on what's going on. Like things just happen and they just, that's what I mean when I say it's just keep happening. And that's why I say it's like a limp noodle because everything that happens just sort of lies there without any kind of impact. Yeah, I also feel like I don't get why this was made the way it was. (laughs) I mean, I'm pretty close to saying I don't get why this was made, but yeah. So we have a studio looking for something new to bring, like, money back into their studio, to bring, like, for lack of a better word, like, prestige, but not, like, the money. Yeah, they're looking They're looking for new blood, right? They're looking yeah. to launch a new franchise. They're like Warner Brothers trying to figure out what to do with the Harry Potter license once you've adapted all the books. But, like, it doesn't support a project like this to be good. Yeah. Like, to the point where, like, they're like, just fucking direct this, Arthur Lubin. Like, I don't fucking care. Just get it done. Like, you're not putting any actual support behind this. Not even to the point where, like, this has, like, talented people behind the camera. Like, no one fucking cares except to the degree of, like... The film is exposed. <laughs> like, the film is exposed. Um, the capacity of professionalism, basically. Yeah. Like, I feel like that's why Gail Sondergaard is doing so well here. Like, because she just has, like, a level of professionalism. And I think everyone in yeah. front of the camera is doing that. But, like, no one... Like, I, I don't know. I just feel like if you wanted something to be a hit, find someone who would actually want to make this. Or turn it into something that's a passion project. Or, well, I mean, you know... Obviously, that's not 100% a recipe for success, Yeah, but, like, I mean, like, it would be a start. Like, the biggest problem for me with this movie isn't Arthur Lubin not giving a shit. It's the script being bewildering. Yeah. Because here's the thing, like, if you want to start a new franchise, this new version of the Spider-Woman character for Gail Sondergaard is not a character you can build a franchise around. She is explicitly linked to one place. Right? Like, all she cares about is, like, the land around her house. Um, She has one particular goal, which is to get that land back. She has one particular plan uh, to get that land back, which makes no sense. And then she blows up at the end. Now, the blowing up at the end, this is a Universal series. That's not a problem. But, like, what would you do with a sequel for this? Like, what would she be after the next time? Like, there's nothing. And the gimmick for her isn't anything enough to, like... Mm -hmm latch on to. Like, if they really wanted to keep this idea of, like, oh, she's into plants, or she's, like, tied to the land, they should have gone full hog with the, like, poison ivy element. Right, right. Of, like, she's actually becoming more like a plant. Maybe she actually is blind, and that's why she needs a companion, and the companion's discovering, like, oh, shit, she's actually part plant. And then, rather than blowing up at the end, she, like, gets sucked into, like, plant goo, and is terrorizing the land in further sequels of, like, you know, bristly thorns coming out of the ground or some shit. Well, the thing is, is like, so I thought that what we were going to find out was that like, you know, she has this series of companions because she's like extracting something from them. Yeah. I thought there was going to be something with glands. To cure her blindness. Yeah. Right. Because her entire plan makes no sense. And it's, it's, it's all of the pieces of it exist only so that, different pieces of this horror movie can exist because like it's why would this be the way you would think you're like okay here's your problem your dad sold all your old land and some farmers own it now 
So how are you going to get it back? Well, apparently, the steps to this are you're going to poison all of their cattle so that they will sell their land so that because they you know don't have the cattle to put on the land anymore and you'll buy it back. Well, how are you going to poison their cattle? Well, are you going to you know just buy some poison and 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 poison the feed? No, apparently you're going to make your own poison from these super rare South American plants that you found. Okay, well, they, but they they don't leave any residue, right? So that's that's the justification. But like then it's like okay, well but my super rare South American plants are blood drinkers. So now in order to keep them alive, I need to keep feeding them blood. So I guess I'll need human victims. Well, how will I get my human victims? Well, I guess I'll hire people to come to the house. Well, what's a reason that I could hire someone that no one would find suspicious? I guess I'll pretend to be blind so that I can hire people to be my companions so I can suck their blood for my plants. Like, it's so... And I think, It's so convoluted. I mean, she says that, like, no one will suspect me, I'm blind kind of thing there. Like, Like, at the end when she's, like, giving her whole spiel. I get that it's all rationalized, but it's still, like, the most... Like, it's not an easy... Yeah. If you want to base a franchise around something, it's not like an easy idea to to get your head wrapped around. Yeah. You know, it's too many steps and she has too many gimmicks. By the way, have you seen the poster? No. It is ridiculous. There's like a lady, it looks like a standard horror movie poster except instead of like a lady in peril being dragged away by a creature or some shit, it's a blonde lady in a red dress. Like, looking at you seductively. Like, they didn't even know how to market this movie. I guess not. Like, it's, it's, you know, and then the house just fucking explodes at the end. Like, I mean. It's a universal movie. It's, it's, the movie's just kind of, yeah, it's just a lot of pieces that are just lying there. Yeah. I I don't know. I don't know what more to say, really. Um, then let's move on to ranking. Okay. Where were you looking? Bottom ten. Now, to address, I guess, the necessary question, I do think this is a horror movie. I agree. Um, it's just bad. Yeah. But it's clear that the intent was, like, to create a horror film. It has sort of the same feeling of, like, you know when Jack Skellington tries to make Christmas? <laughs> this is like that, but for a 40s horror movie. Like, it's like someone using the pieces of a horror movie, but they don't understand like, the spirit of the horror within. So, when I say the bottom ten, I'm actually looking specifically uh, between 120 and 131. That's the monster walks all the way down to Son of Ngagi. That's right. I think this could potentially be better than the monster walks and go in at the new number 120, because I think the mad ghoul, which is right above this, has at least, like, a climax that attempts suspense. What is the mad ghoul about again? That's the one where George Zuko accidentally makes his research assistant into a zombie who needs to eat dead people to survive. Oh, yeah. <laughs> using Aztec. Oh, yeah, and they're, like, following. They're, like, going to town to town to town. Yeah, with the like, girl on her singing concert tour. And, like, yeah. At the, yeah. And then he, <laughs> And every place Zuko is named, gets, like, Townsville. Yes, and Zuko gets injected with the ghoul serum at the end. Yeah, yeah. that's dope. Like, um, so I think... The Mad Ghoul is better than this, but right below The Mad Ghoul, The Monster Walks, that's the one where, like, there's an ape in the basement. Yeah. Um, and I'm mad about, like... 
and the like, dad's in really the wheelchair, but there's nothing. Yeah. But instead, it was just an ape. And then, like, as you go down, you've got, like, a lot of shorts, a lot of Melies stuff. You've got wolf blood. Um, I kept going down. When you hit, like, 128 House of Mystery, you know, this is where I started to, mm, is this better than, maybe it's better than these, maybe these are worse. I know for sure this is better than Son of Ngagi. Yeah. Because Son of Ngagi is unfortunately just, like, inept. Yeah. Uh, in a way that this at least has some base professionalism. But it might be as boring as Condemned to Live. I'm not really sure. So that's kind of where I ended up was 120 to 131. I think it could be the new 131, or I think it could be the new 120, or anywhere in between there. My range is above that, but we have a little bit of overlap. Okay. So I was feeling like it's... The highest I would put this is at 111, The mm. Monster Maker. Mm-hmm. And my floor was The Monster Walks at 120. Ah, gotcha. So, yeah. The, uh, part of the reason why I was kind of looking above this and even, like, comparing it with The Monster Maker or, like, considering it better than, say, like, The Crime of Dr. Crespi is because there is, like, a level of skill and professionalism going on here, even though... It does just lie there like a limp noodle. Like, it just kind of is there. The Spider-Woman Strikes Back is unfortunately not quite bad enough to be entertaining for being bad. Yeah. Like, Gail Sondegard and Rondo Hatton, you know, I think we're fans. Yeah. But the two of them in a bad movie isn't, for me, worth the price of admission the way that Dwight Fry. And Eric von Stroheim in a bad movie is? Yeah, so I feel like, even just thinking about the plot of the Mad Ghoul, um, I would be happy with the Spider-Woman Strikes Back going below the Mad Ghoul, but above the Monster Walks. Yeah, I'm I'm totally cool with that. Part of the reason why I'm thinking here is because I get so mad about the Monster Walks ha- like missing an opportunity. And like I didn't see the gay, lesbian vampire thing you you like saw the potential for here mm. but even just the potential of like like supporting this movie universal you if you want something good you kind of have to like put effort into it yeah yeah all right so entering the list at the new number 120 is the spider woman strikes back from 1946 directed by arthur lubin if you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the many episodes we've mentioned today during like the context setting, um, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, or if you have any concerns, questions, general thoughts, we'd love to hear them. Drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. Email us directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or reach out on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts. With our RSS feed, you can subscribe to us on any podcatcher that you use. And if you'd like to help the show out, you can spread the word to a friend or a colleague. If you know people who like old classic horror movies or old B-movies... Um, this is uh, a great show uh, to learn more about these old movies that you have to find bootleg 16mm <laughs> copies of to watch. And to help you determine which ones to avoid. Yeah, that's, that's also a valuable public service that we provide. <laughs> um, Good for us. Yep. Pats on the back. Share the show on social media or uh, 
just in person. Another way that you can help us out is by heading over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. There you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month, and patrons at the $5 and $10 levels get uh, regular bonus content, uh, whether that's cut content from previous episodes, short stories, essays, music, audiobooks. We've done all kinds of cool, fun stuff on the Patreon. Yeah. So that's patreon.com slash Podcast. Speaking of Carmilla, mm. that's the audiobook. Right. That's up there. So yeah, check it out. Uh, okay. What are we watching next week, Ben? We've had a bad horror movie. Yeah. Last week was not even a horror movie. Mm-hmm. What's next week? Next week is House of Horrors, starring Rondo Hatton as his Sherlock Holmes character, the Creeper. Okay. So it's it's this minus Gail Sondegard with more Rondo Hatton. Okay. I mean, if he gets to speak in it, um, I'll be pretty happy. Yeah, let's, uh, let's keep an open mind. Yeah, of course. Always. See you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye! Bye! Bye!